Second Chronicles chapter 35, if you'll turn there with me as we continue our journey through the book of Second Chronicles together, Lord willing, if we can uh, make it, I'd like to try and finish up Second Chronicles this evening. I'd like to actually move a little more quickly through chapter 35 and uh, therefore allow us to be able to finish up chapter 36 as well. We've been looking at the decline of the southern kingdom of Judah, and uh, what's a beautiful pattern to see is right before ultimately what becomes sadly the judgment of the Lord against the nation of Judah, we see sort of one last spiritual revival among the people of God take place, it seems, under the reign of Josiah, this young man who came to the throne at a very young age, and despite his upbringing and exposure to a lot of ungodliness and evil, in his own family upbringing, it seems that there was just a sovereign move of the Spirit of God on the heart of this young man, and he just had a a real tender heart towards the Lord. He began to seek the Lord while he was young, the Bible says, just at 16 years old. And then after that, began to just really let his life be useful for God. He began to purge the land from the wooden images and the idolatry. He began to eradicate that which was evil along the land at that time, trying to purge the ungodliness uh, from among the nation to the best degree that he could. He, remember, reopened uh, up the temple and restored worship back into the temple of God again as he was cleaning out the temple of God, which had been neglected and really more than that, just kind of destroyed and ransacked. And in the midst of that process, as he was doing that, remember, there was the rediscovery of the word of God. They had lost the law of the Lord and weren't giving attention or really any priority to it. And it says that they come to him bringing this book of the law and they read to him the word of God. And his heart is gripped with conviction as he recognizes uh, that they have themselves in a position where they absolutely merit and deserve nothing other than the judgment of God at this point. And he realizes they've been neglecting God's ways. They've been doing things that grieve God. And really, according to Deuteronomy chapter 28, uh, had brought really nothing more than the punishment and the curse of God being due upon their nation Uh, And in light of that, he went and sought some counsel in regards to what they should do. And more than that, it tells us that he stood up as the national leader at that time, remember, and he just began to read the word of God to the people. Uh, As their national leader, he began to speak and read from God's word to them as chapter 34 came to a close. And it tells us as he read the book of the law and the hearing of the words of it uh, in the ears of the people that he then sort of made a public commitment before the people to God himself and as a national leader he told the people that he wanted to follow the Lord and the commandments of God with all of his heart and all of his soul and it says the end of chapter 34 he even then exhorted the people as well to take a stand for God and it says he encouraged them uh, actually verse 33 of chapter 34 says he made them uh, diligently serve the Lord Uh, So in the midst of these things, chapter 35 now records more of God working through the heart of King Josiah as he now reinstitutes the Passover, something else that had been neglected among the people. It says, chapter 35, verse 1, now Josiah kept a Passover to the Lord in Jerusalem, and they slaughtered the Passover lambs, it says, on the 14th day of the first month. Now, Verse 1 of chapter 35 really gives us just the, the declaration of what chapter 35 then expounds upon. 
uh, and describes to us the actual events of this keeping of the Passover on the first, uh, it says, month on the 14th day, which was the prescribed time that the nation of Israel, the Jewish people, were told by God to observe the Passover celebration. And again, remember, the Passover celebration was instituted back in Exodus chapter 12, and it was one of those three mandatory feasts. There were multiple feasts in Israel, and holidays or holy days really is what they were. They were religious celebrations. When the people of God were to take a break from what they were doing, they were to give their attention to God at different times throughout the course of the year— to commemorate some work of God, to remember some aspect of how God had worked among their nation. And the three that were mandatory were Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. And Passover, remember, was that celebration where they would reflect upon God's mighty deliverance that he brought to them when they were enslaved in their bondage there in Egypt. And how God had intervened on their behalf and brought them out in a great deliverance and how he had told them to apply the blood of the sacrificial lamb that had been slain on the doorposts and the lentil of their homes. And that as the judgment of God came through Egypt and the death angel came through, that judgment would pass over them and they wouldn't experience that judgment All the Egyptians and people who were living in worldly ways would, but if the blood was applied upon their household as the death angel saw that blood, the wrath of God passed over them, and then ultimately they were brought out at that same time out of their slavery and bondage and ultimately brought into the new experience of what God wanted for them, ultimately the promised land. Of course, just this beautiful picture of salvation, the Passover celebration and the Passover experience was. And that's why Paul, writing in the New Testament, tells us that Christ is our Passover when he writes to the Corinthians. That is, Jesus is our Passover. It's through the sacrifice of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, that the judgment of God passes over our lives, and God brings us deliverance, if you would, from entanglement in the world, Egypt, and from the slavery that we were once under of Satan, the God of this age, like Pharaoh, who was subjecting us to slavery and spiritual bondage, and God delivers us through the blood of Christ, and his judgment passes over us because of what Jesus does for us. That's why John, remember when he saw Jesus, he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Uh, And so Passover was a fundamental celebration for the people of Israel because it really kept them rooted in God's deliverance and God's salvation for them. That God had worked in a way to deliver and to bring salvation to them. And so now Josiah, recognizing, no doubt as he had began reading the word of God, this copy that they had found in the temple hidden away, he's realizing we needed to return to these things. We need to go back to the roots of our faith and begin to commemorate and celebrate and worship the things God wants us to. So he now wants to institute the celebration of Passover. So verse 2 says he set the priests in their duties and he encouraged them for their service of the house of the Lord. So he's now reestablishing the different roles of those who were to function in ministry and participate in the leading of the Passover celebration. He says he puts the priests back into their roles. He encourages them to participate in their assigned duties of ministry in the house of God. In verse 3, he said to the Levites who taught all of Israel, that was the primary role of the Levites. They were the ministers who did the teaching 
throughout Israel. They were scattered, remember, throughout the land in different locations, and they were to be there in these different territories, the Levitical cities, so that it wasn't far for the people of God to have to go any real distance to be able to get instruction in the law of the Lord. And that's what the Levites primarily did. They taught the people the ways of God. They would answer questions regarding the law of the Lord and the ways that God had spoken about in his word. So he now commands the Levites who taught all Israel, who were holy to the Lord. The idea is set apart to the Lord. He says to them, put the holy ark in the house which Solomon, the son of David, the king of Israel, built. That is, put the ark of God back into the temple, he's saying, the temple that existed there in Jerusalem. It shall no longer be a burden on your shoulders. Now serve the Lord your God and his people Israel. Now, interesting little insight here we get from the Holy Spirit. It seems, remember, because the ark of God, which was the central piece of furniture, in the built temple by Solomon, the permanent temple of God that was there in Jerusalem, that, remember, was placed in that rear room, the Holy of Holies, where they once a year, the high priest would go in and apply the blood of atonement for the sins of the nation there on the mercy seat of the Ark of God. And there is the place where, remember, God would manifest his presence in the temple. Uh, And the Ark was this symbolic representation of the glory of God, where the presence of God would be manifest among his people. And so because of that, remember, they would carry the ark, the Levites would, on their shoulders. No one was to touch it. They would carry it around. And during the 40 years they wandered in the wilderness, when they were setting up the tabernacle and tearing it back down, the tent-like structure that they used for worship, the, the Levites would carry it around. But then when Solomon's temple was built, it was put in there permanently, and it was to be left there permanently. So it seems that perhaps, again, we can only speculate, we don't have a lot of explanation, that perhaps when Manasseh and others were defiling the temple and kind of ransacking the house of God, that perhaps the Levites and the priests opted to go in and to take out the ark and to begin to move it around to keep it from being destroyed and defiled because it was such a a, a precious and a reverent thing to them that they had been carrying it around while the temple was being neglected and abused during the time of some of the ungodly kings. And so now that the temple is reopened and worship is being established, one of the things that takes place is Josiah says, look, take the holy ark, and he says, put it back into the temple where it belongs. Put it back into its place that the presence of God may have its rightful place amongst us. And he says, it shall no longer be a burden on your shoulders. He says, it's no longer a time to be carrying it. Times are changing. And he says, now I want you to dedicate yourself fully to serving the Lord and his people. So there was this transitional period that's happening here. For a time, they were functioning in a particular way. And in a sense, Josiah is saying as a word from the Lord, listen, that time of how you have been functioning has now come to a close. No longer are you to function in that way. Now he says, I want you to dedicate yourself fully to the things of the service of the house of God and to serve the Lord and his people. A sort of transitional period was happening now for the Levites. So he says to them, verse four, prepare yourselves According to your father's houses, according to your divisions, remember they served in rotating divisions, following the written instruction of David, king of Israel, and the written instruction of Solomon, his son, 
and stand in the holy place according to the divisions of the father's houses of your brethren and lay people and according to the division of the father's house of the Levites. So he tells them, look, prepare yourselves, get back into these divisions, the different rotating schedules they would serve on as the ministers of the Lord who were anointed and set apart by God to function in this capacity. And he says, prepare yourself, verse 4, he says there, to follow the written instruction of David and the written instruction of Solomon. Again, the, the inference there is to the written word of God. Prepare yourselves according to what is written in the word of God. And I think that's great instruction for any of us. If we want to prepare ourselves to do what God wants us to do, the best way to do that is to prepare yourself by beginning to function and taking your instruction from what is written in the word of God. The best way to become prepared to serve the Lord efficiently and adequately and ultimately effectively is to have a good working knowledge of the word of God. I want to prepare myself to be more useful for the Lord. Well, I'll tell you, first place to start, get very well acquainted with the written word of God. Of God, Because as you become well acquainted with the written word of God, you'll know the will of God, you'll understand the ways of God, and how the spirit of God functions and operates, and you will make yourself the most prepared to really serve the Lord to the greatest capacity. He says, verse 6, to them, so slaughter the Passover offerings, consecrate yourselves, that is, set yourself apart, prepare them for your brethren that they may do according to the word of the Lord by the hand of Moses. Then Josiah gave the lay people lambs and young goats from the flock for all the Passover offerings for all who were present to the number of quite an extravagant number. Look, 30,000 as well as 3,000 cattle. And these were from the king's own possessions. So Josiah, recognizing that there may not be sufficient ability among the common people to be able to bring their animals for these offerings, wanting to have this great Passover celebration, it says that he, from his own possessions, the king himself, supplies for the people to be able to worship, it says there, verse 7, 30,000 lambs as well as 3,000 cattle. Now, that's how you can tell when someone's heart is in something, because when their heart is in it, they're willing to do whatever they can to put their own personal sacrifice behind it. Again, whether it's of their own resources, materially, financially, whether it's of their possessions, whether it's of their time, their energy, their effort. He says, look, my heart is in this, and the way it's going to be evidence my heart is in this is I'm willing to make what sacrifices it requires to be able to help this process come to pass. And so here, of his own possessions, this national leader, he dedicates you know, upwards to 33,000 animals of his own herds and flocks so that they can carry out this Passover and worship as God's people. In verse 8, it says, And his leaders, that is, who were supporting and around him, they gave willingly to the people, to the priests and the Levites, Hilkiah and Zechariah and Jehiel, Rulers of the house of God gave to the priests also for the Passover offerings 2,000 and 600 from the flock and 300 cattle. Also Conaniah, his brothers Shemaiah and Athanel, 
and Hashbaiah and Jael and Josabad, chief of the Levites, they gave to the Levites for Passover offerings 5,000 from the flock and 500 cattle. So interesting to see here. We've often said before, and I think it's a great statement, strong leadership breeds commitment. And here's a beautiful illustration of that. Josiah and his strong leadership stepping forward boldly, making himself available in every way, showing sacrifice himself, demonstrating commitment himself as a strong leader. It breeds a lot of commitment because it says there, verse 8 9, his leaders also followed his example. You see what it says, verse 8, his leaders also gave willingly to the people. And it mentions the numbers of animals that the different leaders dedicated following the example of King Josiah as a godly man and a good, strong leader among them. And what a beautiful thing to see. You know, there's something really wonderful about strong leadership and good example that causes other people to say, you know what? I want to do that. I want to live the way he's living. I want to serve the way she's serving. I want to follow that pattern that I see in that person who's really sold out for the Lord or willing to sacrifice and dedicate themselves and who's, you know, kind of paving the way by the things that they're doing in their worship life or their willingness to take a stand for God or serve the Lord and and how it inspires other people. And it's beautiful to see how his leaders kind of rally around and they say, hey, if you're doing that, then we're doing it, too. And they kind of rally around him and begin to follow his pattern. Verse 10 says, so the service was prepared. That is the, the worship service, the idea is. And, and I love the language there. The service was prepared. I think whenever we're worshiping the Lord, whether it's in a Passover celebration or a communion service or a worship service, uh, I don't think we should just fly by the seat of our pants. And sometimes people kind of deem that as spiritual. We're just going to kind of let the spirit lead. You know, we're just going to kind of just be unprepared and, and we're just spontaneously going to see what the spirit of God does. Well, the Bible tells us regarding the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, it says right in the midst of that, that all things are to be done decently and in order, and that God is not the author of confusion, uh, that God works within the realm of order. Now, within the realm of order, can there be flexibility? Absolutely, there should be. We don't ever want to be rigid and overregulate things. But to have a sense of being prepared, doing what we should do on a human level, to have some preparation in the midst of a worship service or some observance or a spiritual gathering or meeting uh, is an important part in the process. And then from there, we kind of just let the Lord kind of just connect the dots and, and put the pieces together. And there can be orderliness and yet variety. There can be order and yet still flexibility and openness to the Holy Spirit. And I like here is they're preparing to have this great Passover celebration. It's going to say in verses 17 and 18, there had never been a Passover like this before from God's perspective. In other words, God put his stamp of endorsement upon this and God said, that was my favorite Passover in human history. The way that they did that, the way that they went about that was something about it that was just really special from God's perspective. So the service is prepared The priests stood in their places, so they have their positions. Everybody's in their places doing their activities and ministries, fulfilling their roles as they're supposed to. The Levites in their divisions, according to the king's command, and they slaughtered the Passover offerings. 
The priests sprinkled the blood with their hands and the Levites skinned the animals. Again, remember the blood was what made atonement. Uh, so it was important. And, you know, again, notice the Bible's not bashful. The Bible says slaughtered multiple times. They slaughtered the lambs. I know that's hard for us sometimes if we, you know, love our little fuzzy animals. I mean, that kind of sounds graphic. But understand, without the shedding of blood, God said there's no remission of sins. Uh, Jesus, uh, still the Bible tells us, even in his eternal body, bears the marks of slaughter, the book of Revelation tells us. That he's still bearing the marks of a lamb that had been slain, the Bible says. And again, that's important to recognize because that's what sin does. It brings death. It causes the innocent to have to die for the guilty. It's necessary. And so these lambs were being slaughtered, it says, for the Passover. The priests sprinkling the blood. And they removed the burnt offerings that they might give them to the divisions of their father's houses to the lay people, to offer them to the Lord as it's written in the book of Moses. And they did so with all the cattle. Verse 13, they then roasted the Passover offerings with fire according to the ordinance. But the other holy offerings, they boiled in the pots, in the cauldrons, in the pans, and they divided them quickly among the lay people. Verse 14, then afterward, that is after they took care of the people, they then prepared portions for themselves and for the priests because the priests, the son of Aaron, were busy in offering burnt offerings and fat until night. Therefore, the Levites prepared portions for themselves and for the priests and the sons of Aaron. So you see this pattern here. They first served the people, and then after they served the people, they then attended to themselves. Again, there's this beautiful pattern of, again, putting others before themselves, you know, seeking not to be served, but to serve. Philippians chapter 2, remember, tells us, let each of you look out not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others, considering others better than yourself. Uh, and here we see the Levites, the priests, those who are the ministers, those who are spiritual leaders and seeking to be servants among the people. Their pattern was to make sure the people were taken care of first. And then once the people were taken care of afterward, it says they then prepared adequate portions for themselves. In a sense, they fed others first. And then afterwards, if there was left, uh, when they were done doing that, they then made sure that they were taken care of as well. Verse 15, it says, And the singers, the sons of Asaph, were in their place. So worship and music and song was a big part of this Passover celebration. God wants us to worship him through the vehicle of music and singing. That's evident throughout the Bible. So this was critical. It says they were in that place according to the command of David and Asaph and Heman and Judith and the king's seer. Also the gatekeepers, the security staff, the ushers, the ideas. It says they were at each gate and they did not have to leave their position because their brethren, the Levites, prepared portions for them. So they didn't have to neglect their duties because the Levites were making sure to supply those who were serving the Lord. They didn't want them to be pulled away, the singers, the gatekeepers. They didn't want them to be distracted or overburdened, so they made sure to prepare portions for them so that they could be sustained and adequately supported to keep doing the work of God and giving their full attention to this worship for the people. Verse 16 says, So all the service of the Lord was prepared that same day to keep the Passover and to offer the burnt offerings on the altar of the Lord according to the command of King Josiah, and as I said a few moments ago, look at verse 17. 
It says, And the children of Israel who were present kept the Passover at that time and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That was the seven-day celebration that followed the Passover. Verse 18, There had been no Passover, the Holy Spirit tells us, kept in Israel like that since the days of Samuel the prophet. And none of the kings of Israel had kept such a Passover as Josiah kept with the priests and the Levites, all Judah and all Israel who were present, and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. In the 18th year of the reign of Josiah, this Passover was kept. So there was something about this particular Passover, the extravagance of it, the extent of it, of all the offerings, you know, how wholeheartedly Josiah brought this to pass, how you know, how passionate he was about the process, how he rallied together and so many people came together. There was an apathy, but lots of people coming together, participating in this Passover in such a way that the Lord looked upon it and he said, I have never since the days of Samuel seen such a Passover celebration. And there was something about it that the Holy Spirit says, so please the heart of God that since the days of Samuel, God said, that has been my favorite Passover celebration that's ever happened in the days of Josiah. Now, I don't know about you, but apparently there were things about that Passover celebration that God just really liked and God just really enjoyed. And so I look at that and I think, wow, you know, would to God, Lord, that when it comes to a worship service, that every time I gather for a worship meeting, that, that my heart's desire would be, Lord, I hope this Wednesday night service would be such a, a worship gathering that you would look and say, that is the favorite worship service I have ever been a part of since Calvary Chapel Gateway began. Lord, I pray this Sunday morning that, that you would say, that was my favorite Sunday morning service that I've ever been a part of in worshiping together and just seeing the people of God worshiping me and studying my word. And they were really engaged and, and, and connected and participating in such a way that the Lord would say, that's been my favorite worship service since the church began. Wow, that was fantastic. Or the greatest communion service. I mean, what a neat thing here that the Lord would say such a thing. You know, may it inspire our hearts. Uh, to want to do what we can as our participation in the worship gatherings to make them something that really please the Lord. You know, not, not what's enjoyable to us necessarily, but what really makes God blessed. How can we minister to him and bless his heart? That should be our heart. And what a neat thing to see how the Lord recognizes. He takes note of worship meetings in certain times that just really are special to him. Verse 20 says, and after all this, that is when Josiah had prepared the temple, he had reopened and got things back in order in the house of God. He kind of makes a little bit of a, a, a slippage here uh, in the latter part of his reign. Again, no man is perfect. And the Bible is always honest. It shows us some of the faults of even the greatest servants of the Lord. And Josiah makes one as well at the end of his reign. It says, after all this, Necho, king of Egypt, came up to fight against Karshemesh by the Euphrates, and Josiah went out against him. Now, what this is describing, a time historically, understand, at this time period, Assyria, the, the world empire at this time, which has already conquered a northern kingdom, the empire of Assyria is declining. Uh, Egypt, which was another strong dominant power at that time, 
they are beginning to vie for power as well because the Babylonian Empire is on the rise. The Assyrian Empire is declining. The Babylonian Empire is beginning to gain strength and are beginning to flex their muscles. And Egypt is another major world player at this time. So what this describes is a time, Second uh, Kings chapter 23 gives a little more detail to fill this in, where Necho, king of Egypt, decides to unify himself in battle to assist the Assyrian Empire to try and hold back the push of the Babylonians. So he goes up to fight against, it says, uh, at this time, together with the Assyrians, to fight against Babylon there in the area of Carchemish by the Euphrates. And in order to do that, he decides to cut across, coming from the south, to cut across the territory of Israel. Now, for some reason, he comes cutting across the territory of Israel. Josiah, we're not told why, is inclined to go out and pick a fight with him. Now, whether that's because Josiah didn't want the, uh, you know, the, the Babylonians to arise to power or he didn't want the you know, Egyptians to arise to power and he didn't want Assyria, we're not told why. But for some reason, as they're cutting across his territory, Josiah says, you know what, I, I'm feeling a little, little big today. And maybe because God was working in his life in such a special way, he began to get a little bit lifted up in his heart and pride, and, and he decides to kind of get a little bit zealous and aggressive and go off, and he kind of tries to bite off a little more than he can chew and handle, and he goes out to fight against, it says, the king of Egypt, Necho, at this time. But verse 21 says, but he, that is Necho, sent messengers to him, saying, what have I to do with you, king of Judah? I've not come out against you this day, but against the house which I have wore. He says, look, I don't have anything to do with you. This has nothing to do. What are you doing coming out here, he says. I'm not looking for a fight with you. I'm just looking to cut across your territory to go fight the battle that I want to go fight together with Assyria against the Babylonians. And he says, what are you doing coming out here, flexing your muscle and instigating a fight that has nothing to do with any issue between you and I? He says, for God has commanded me to make haste. He says, look, God himself has directed me to engage quickly in this battle, and you're going to hold me back and slow me down. So he says, refrain from meddling with God who is with me, lest he destroy you. So again, here's a pagan king, the king of Egypt, but yet he apparently is being used as an instrument of God to ultimately carry out a process and to engage in a battle. And he says, look, God has told me this is something I'm supposed to do. And he says, you're meddling with God's business here. What are you doing? In essence, he is saying, look, don't interfere with God. God's trying to do something here. You may not understand what he's doing. It has nothing to do with you. And you're meddling in business that doesn't belong to you. You're interfering in a fight in a battle that is not yours to be involved in. You know, and sometimes people who are very zealous or if we can sometimes get a little bit, you know, too full of ourselves, sometimes we make the mistake of overstepping our boundaries sometimes and we get a little zealous and sometimes we go and get ourselves engaged in things that really aren't our business at all to be involved in. And we go trying to meddle in a situation 
or we start interfering in a circumstance or we start trying to participate in something that God is doing and we're actually interfering with God. And we're actually engaging in something that God's saying, this has nothing to do with you. It's not your business. This is something that you should just stay out of and keep your hands off of. And this warning comes from Necho. Look, you are interfering with God, he says, by interfering with my situation. Verse 22, nevertheless, Josiah would not turn his face away from him, but disguised himself so that he might fight with him and did not heed the words of Necho from the mouth of God. So he came to fight in the valley of Megiddo. So Josiah would not take the word of the Lord that was coming. Maybe he thought, you're a pagan. Who are you to tell me? I'm, I'm in a relationship with God. You know, sometimes we can even get like that. Think somehow God can't work through a non-Christian. <laughs> I've been rebuked by a non-Christian one or two times before in my life than I can remember where they kind of said something and you know, you're thinking, man, like that felt like that was a word from the Lord. Well, look, God spoke through a donkey to Balaam. So if there's some donkey, we'll use the kind word, in your job, and God so chooses through their mouth to caution you or to rebuke you or to say something because he's trying to protect you or get your attention, uh, be careful you don't get hyper-spiritual and just think, well, who are you? You're, you're no, no Christian. You're not a pastor. Who are you to tell me or give some insight to me? And you kind of get the attitude Josiah did in arrogance here, and you don't back off, and you won't turn away, and you won't listen and let it go, which is sometimes what we need to do. You can get yourself in some real trouble sometimes, being overzealous or maybe meddling or interfering in things that we shouldn't. And Josiah says he wouldn't back off. He wouldn't listen. God was trying to get through to him. But he would not turn away. He would not listen and just let it go in a matter. You know, I don't know. Maybe tonight that's a, you know, a, a encouragement before it's too late for you in the Lord. If God's been signed, trying to say to you, look, stop interfering. Stop interfering. It's not your business in this situation to interfere. Let God work. Because you're not just interfering with man. Sometimes you're interfering with what God's doing. And sometimes God says, back off. Let the matter go. Don't interfere. Keep your hands and your life out of it. Verse 23, he went into the battle and the archers shot King Josiah. Interesting, he was disguised, right? But he still got shot with an arrow. And the king said to his servants, take me away for I am severely wounded. The servants therefore took him out of the chariot and put him in the second chariot that he had. And they brought him to Jerusalem and tried to rush him back to the capital city because he was mortally wounded. But he died and he was buried in one of the tombs of his fathers and all Judah and Jerusalem mourned for Josiah. This good man, sadly, because of a poor decision, ended up losing his life. And Jeremiah, the prophet, that is, who was ministering at the time, also lamented for Josiah. And to this day, all the singing men and singing women speak of Josiah in their lamentations. They made it a custom in Israel, and indeed they are written in the laments. Now the rest of the acts of Josiah and his goodness according to what was written in the law of the Lord and his deeds from first to last, indeed they are written in the book of the kings of Israel and Judah. So Josiah is just a good life lesson, a reminder to us that it's good to be zealous for the Lord. 
It's good to be zealous and passionate in the things of the Lord, to want to let God use you. But in the midst of being zealous for the Lord and passionate and wanting to let God use you, don't push boundaries. Be careful. Because sometimes when we're really zealous spiritually, sometimes we can be a little too aggressive in the flesh, and then we end up interfering with what God's doing sometimes. And what happened with Josiah? He was severely wounded and he suffered great loss and he made a great mistake. And we don't want to end up doing that, causing harm to our life because we interfere in maybe something God doesn't want us involved in. Well, chapter 36 then begins to describe the decline and fall now of Judah to the nation or the empire, excuse me, of Babylon, the last few kings, quick reigns. It says, then the people of the land took Jehoahaz, the son of Josiah, made him king in his father's place. And Jehoahaz was 23 years old when he became king. And he reigned, notice, only three months in Jerusalem. Second Kings chapter 23 says that he did evil in the sight of the Lord. And because of his evil, he had a very short reign. And then it says the king of Egypt, uh, excuse me, the king of Egypt, verse 3, deposed him at Jerusalem. And he imposed on the land a tribute of 100 talents of silver and a talent of gold. So the king of Egypt comes up and he, in a sense, overthrows the king of Judah after just three months on the throne. He subjects him to have to to pay taxes and takes over control and kind of just makes him a a puppet king as he dethrones him. Verse 4 says, And the king of Egypt then made Jehoahaz his brother Eliakim king over Judah and Jerusalem in his place. And then he changed his name, the new king, to Jehoiakim. And Necho took Jehoahaz, his brother, and carried him off to Egypt, where he died there ultimately. So Judah first is briefly conquered by Egypt at this time. It says that Eliakim is now put in place sort of as a puppet king because uh, the king of Egypt takes over the territory. And notice his name is changed to Jehoiakim. Now, the reason of the changing of a name implies I am in complete control and domination over your life. Again, when a child is born, typically, right, the parents have authority over the child. They don't get to pick their own name, right? When you're born, your parents, because they have authority, they choose your name for you. They give you your name. So that's the idea. The idea is like, I took over your life. You are my son. I am in control of you. That's why they would change the name. It was a way of identifying, I am an authority and you are subject to, to my rulership and my authority over your life. So that's why the name change would happen at times. So here, his name is changed to Eliakim, verse five, excuse me, to Jehoiakim. And Jehoiakim, it says, verse 5, was 25 years old when he became king. He reigned 11 years in Jerusalem and also did evil in the sight of the Lord. And verse 6 says, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up against him. So now notice Babylon has risen to the place of world dominance at about 11 or 12 years after this time, an 11-year reign. And Nebuchadnezzar now comes in, and it says, and bound him in bronze fetters to carry him off to Babylon. And Nebuchadnezzar also carried off some of the articles from the house of the Lord to Babylon, and he put them in his temple at Babylon. Now, verses 6 and 7 describe for us the time period is 605 B.C., historically, and this is now the first of what would be three attacks and deportations 
of the southern kingdom of Judah as they are conquered now by Babylon. So now in 605 BC, Nebuchadnezzar comes up, the first attack against Jerusalem and Judah, the southern kingdom. He deports itself, says, a group of individuals off to Babylon. He also steals at this time precious articles from the house of the Lord, brings them back to his temple. It's at this time historically that some key individuals are deported as exiles back to, uh, back to Babylon. This is when Daniel, and remember his three friends, uh, who we know more uh, better probably by their uh, Babylonians, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It's at this time that Daniel is deported with his friends and brought back to Babylon at 605 B.C. in the first deportation. Verse 8 says, Now the rest of the acts of Jehoiakim, the abominations he did, and what was found against him, indeed they are written in the book of the kings of Israel and Judah, and then Jehoiachin. You got all these names, right? Doesn't matter, they're getting conquered anyway. Reigned in his place. And Jehoiachin, verse 9, was eight years old, probably should be translated, some of your translations render it that way, 18 years old. Uh, that's what Second Kings tells us. But Jehoiachin, at this point, became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem again. Notice very short, just three months and ten days. And again, another of these final kings, he just did evil in the sight of the Lord. And so at the turn of the year, King Nebuchadnezzar, that is in the springtime, summoned him and took him off to Babylon with the costly articles from the house of the Lord and now made Zedekiah, Jehoiakim's brother, so that would be his uncle, Zedekiah, king over Judah and Jerusalem. So this now brings us to 597 B.C., which would be the second deportation when the Babylon comes up. They now hear about eight years or so later after the first deportation with Daniel and his friends. They come again. They conquer the territory in a second degree. Once again, it says they set up a puppet king, Zedekiah at this time, and notice Babylon kind of functioned a little different than Assyria did. Typically, when Assyria would conquer a territory, they would bring away all of the people to their land in Assyria, and then they would take other foreigners who they would then would repopulate a territory who were unfamiliar with that land, and the idea was to keep them in a weakened state so they never could revolt or take over the territory. Babylon did things much different. They would come in, they would take away the cream of the crop. Remember, that's why they took Daniel and his friends, those with great potential, those who were intelligent and smart and gifted. Babylon would take all the, the, you know, the gifted and, and talented people to their territory, use them in their service to enrich their land and nation, and then they would leave the weak and the feeble back in the land with the idea that they could at least maintain their own territory. They didn't have the hassle of having to deal with it, but they were too weak and feeble as the poor and the weak to be able to lead a revolt. So it's at this point now, more people are conquered, more items are stolen from the house of the Lord. It's in this second deportation in 597 described here that Ezekiel, the prophet, is taken to the land of Babylon as well. And from there, he would be conducting his prophecies. Only Jeremiah, the prophet who ministers at this time, is left and he's ministering in Jerusalem. So Daniel, Ezekiel, they're taken to Babylon where their ministries happen Jeremiah the prophet is left back in the land of Jerusalem. 
And it says, verse 11, Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king. He reigned 11 years in Jerusalem, verse 12, but he did evil in the sight of the Lord as God, and he did not, notice, did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet who spoke from the mouth of the Lord. So as he's left there in the territory of Jerusalem, Jeremiah the prophet is ministering at this time. If you know from Jeremiah's prophecies or if you want to read it in connection to this time period historically, Jeremiah's word from the Lord constantly was, listen, we're under the judgment of God. Don't resist it. Just submit to what God's doing. You may not like it. You may not enjoy it. But the best thing you can do is just surrender yourself to the Babylonians. We have to experience the Lord's discipline. We have violated God's boundaries too far. We must now reap the consequences of our sin. And Jeremiah's word was, look, stop trying to squirm out of the consequences. If you try to squirm out of the consequences and resist Babylon and fight them off and say, we are not letting them tell us. But who are they to tell us? They're pagan people. Who are they to take control of us? We're going to fight the system as hard. And Jeremiah said, you're just going to make it miserable for yourself. Just submit to the process, Jeremiah kept saying. Just yield, surrender yourself to the Babylonians. It's the Lord's discipline coming through them. Just let it run its course. And on the other side, God will renew and restore and forgive. But yet Zedekiah did not want to hear that. He kept resisting and fighting He wouldn't listen to Jeremiah the prophet's counsel, which was coming from the word of the Lord. And he also rebelled, therefore, notice, not only against the word of the Lord, but he rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, who made him swear an oath by God. But he stiffened his neck, hardened his heart against turning to the Lord God of Israel. So sadly, Zedekiah was just a stubborn man, stiff-necked. He had a hard heart. And he would not listen to what God was trying to say to him. He rebelled against it. Verse 14, moreover, all the leaders and priests and people transgressed more and more according to all the abominations of the nations. And they defiled the house of the Lord, which he had consecrated in Jerusalem. And the Lord God of their fathers sent notice warnings to them by his messengers, rising up early and sending them because he had compassion on his people and his dwelling place. But they mocked the messengers of God, verse 16 says. They despised his words. They scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people till there was no remedy. So notice, as the decline of Judah happens, as spiritual decline is happening among the nation, and the strong, severe judgment of God is about to come against them, notice what characterized that time, not just evil and transgression and disregarding the things of God, but it says the Lord, even in the midst of that, it says there, in his compassion, verse 15 says for them, he kept sending them messengers, the prophets, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, warning them, cautioning them, stop what you're doing. Stop now. Humble yourself. Repent. Turn around. Turn back to the Lord. And God kept sending them message after message after message, patiently, persistently, as God always does, warning, not wanting to bring severe judgment and punishment upon them. But it says 
They mocked God's messengers and they despised God's words. That is, they devalued what God was trying to say. They disregarded the importance of the word of God. And when anyone tried to speak God's truth into their life, they just refused it. They put a stiff arm up to it. They put their fingers in their ears. They did not want to hear it. And they kept persisting in self-will, doing what they wanted living in their wrong and sinful behaviors, verse 16, sad statement, till there was no remedy. That's a scary statement. Till there was no remedy. The idea was until they got to a place where they had gone too far and God had no other viable option than to have to severely punish them. And we don't ever want to go down that path where we refuse God's word, God's warning. And he is so patient, so compassionate. He keeps cautioning, warning, cautioning, warning. We all know this. And yet, sadly, a person can, can, can refuse to humble themselves. They can refuse to hear what God's trying to say until they get to a place where they go too far. And they cross some line and then there's no remedy anymore. Things are going to come crashing down, falling apart, and they're going to have to experience great suffering. Verse 17, therefore, he brought against them the king of the Chaldeans. He killed their young men with a sword in the house of the sanctuary and had no compassion on young man or virgin, the aged or the weak. He gave them all into his hand. King Nebuchadnezzar with severity came in, killed man, woman, child, boy, girl, no compassion upon any and all the articles from the house of God, great and small, the treasures of the house of the Lord, the treasures of the king and his leaders, all these he took back to Babylon. And then he burned the house of God, broke down the wall of Jerusalem and burned all its palaces with fire and destroyed all its precious possessions. And those who escaped from the sword, he carried away to Babylon as captives and they became his servants to him until his sons, until the rule of the kingdom of Persia. So this describes 586 B.C., that third and final conquest where Jerusalem is attacked, destroyed. It tells us, verse 19, he burns the house of God. He breaks down the wall of Jerusalem as he takes the people away. This is important because verse 19, as he burned the house of God and break down the wall of Jerusalem, this is what Ezra and Nehemiah will be about 70 years later as God goes back and he leads his people in an act of mercy and grace after this time of discipline and judgment to, remember, rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and to reestablish the destroyed temple. And God restores everything that was destroyed by sin. We'll see that in Ezra and Nehemiah in their books. So these things existed until the rule of the kingdom of Persia, that is, the Medo-Persian Empire came after the Babylonian Empire, to fulfill, verse 21, the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed her Sabbaths. As long as she lay desolate, she kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 Years. So again, what's described there is how God's judgment and why God's judgment came about the way it did. Leviticus 25 said that every seven years they were to let the land lie fallow. Remember, they could work the land for six years, harvest it, partake of the crops and the blessing of the Lord. But God said every seventh year, 
as an act of faith to rely upon me and and to, to give the land a chance to replenish and recuperate so that it can stay fruitful and abundant for your crops. God said every seventh year, the land gets a Sabbath, a Sabbath rest. And they were to trust God and God would give them a bumper crop that would carry them all the way through to the eighth year as they did what God's word said and followed God's prescribed manner for how they were to obey him and conduct themselves because the land belonged to God. Well, for 490 years, they rejected that command of God. And in their greed, they thought, well, I mean, we did really good for six years. Why give up the seventh year? And because they wouldn't trust God and in their greediness to get ahead quicker and to gain more and gain more, they kept disregarding the Sabbath year. And they thought, well, yeah, I mean, I know God said that, but God wants us to get ahead. And so they, in their greed, would continue to work the land and they disregarded the way of God. And in a sense, they robbed 70 years, ultimately, because for 490 years, they neglected that seven-year Sabbath And so they owed God 70 years because they stole what belonged to God for 490 years. Well, look, you can't rob God. God said, look, you're not going to rob me. I'll just kick you out of the land for 70 years. And so in light of all these things that they were doing, God came to a point where he drew a line and he said, "Okay, so now you're going to Babylon for 70 years and the land's going to get its rest the way I wanted it to. And so their captivity and time period of being servants and slaves in Babylon as they were conquered was to fulfill those 70 years the land had been, in a sense, stolen from God. And it says, verse 22, Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, he became the new empire after Babylon, after that 70-year period in Babylon, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing saying, thus says King Cyrus, king of Persia, all the kingdoms of the earth, the Lord God of heaven has given to me. And he's commanded me to build him a house. That is the temple at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is among you of all his people? May the Lord his God be with him and let him go up. Now, you may notice in the very next book, Ezra chapter one, these exact same statements are how Ezra's book opens up. That after 70 years of experiencing the consequences of their sin, God graciously stirs the heart of King Cyrus, the Medo-Persian empire, who's now taken over the Babylonian empire and inherited all the Jewish people who are there exiled as captives. God stirs his heart, and as a pagan king, God uses this pagan man to show grace to the people of God, to go back to their land, to rebuild their temple, to rebuild the walls then ultimately around Jerusalem and restore their worship life. And God, as an act of mercy and grace, stirs the heart of Cyrus to initiate this and send the people back. He even finances the project. Again, just a great reminder. It doesn't matter whether somebody in national leadership knows God or doesn't know God. God can still use them because God can stir their heart to do what God wants for God's people. And it's amazing. This is how the book of Second Chronicles ends because it ends on the note of grace. See, Jeremiah 29, that famous verse we know there, God says to the people of Judah who have just 
entered into the judgment of God for their sin and all the consequences in the 70 years. And they are headed towards discipline, headed towards the consequences. And that's when God says to them, I know the thoughts I'm thinking towards you. They're not of harm or of evil, but to give you a future and a hope. In a sense, God is saying, look, you're about to go through a lot of hard consequences. Your sin has brought it on. I can't stop the consequences, God says. But I want you to know, even as you're heading into all the miserable consequences you're going to go through for years ahead, I want you to know I'm not thinking evil towards you. I'm not trying to grind your face in it, though that may be what Babylon's doing to you. I'm not trying to rub your nose in it and with evil intention trying to punish you and make you miserable. God says, I'm already Right when you're starting your consequences, God says, I'm already thinking about the wonderful future I have for you on the other side. I'm already hopeful of how I'm going to restore you and do even greater things in your future. Man, the Bible says what? Where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. How much more through Jesus Christ? That's the heart of God. Look, if you're going through a difficult time because of some bad choices or facing certain things, God's grace through Christ is just awaiting the good things God has on the other side. Lean into things. Let God do what he does in his timing. Let's stand together. Let's pray.